the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And you're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life, a radio program committed to taking your phone calls and answering Bible questions and life questions and anything else that's on your heart. All you have to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585 if you're outside the local San Antonio area. You can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email your questions by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car, and I guess the storms have pretty much moved out, but the streets are still wet, so we want you to be safe. The safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Um... One banner, call now. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Our main number, one more time, is 340-9585. Hey, because it's Wednesday, a couple of announcements I always make on uh, our Wednesday night Bible study tonight at 7 o'clock. In the Old Testament is going to be Isaiah chapters 27 and 28. 28 is really a, a chapter that could be written. Now, it's 27, 2800 years old, uh, but... It could be written now in large parts of it. It has a lot of application for um, for the time that we live in. So that's tonight here at 7 o'clock. You can watch live stream at calvaryessay.com. And because today is Wednesday, Paula will be live in studio with me uh, tomorrow on the date day edition of the program uh, at 4 o'clock on AM 630, the word. So, ladies, it's a day we set aside especially for you. Hey, before I get to questions, let me also add this. I want to share... Um, something I was privileged to do last night and uh, uh, kind of give you guys a heads up on on something that you can go see that that will really bless you. Uh, I went to a private screening of a brand new movie. Uh, it's a movie called uh, Ernie and Joe. Uh, it's a very simple title. Uh, if you want more information on it when I'm done talking, you can go to ernieandjoethefilm.com. That's ErnieAndJoeTheFilm.com. Um, um, I'm actually in the movie for a second. Now, I don't really have a part in it, but it's just sort of in the background. Uh, but Ernie is a police officer who's uh, part of our church body, has been for a really, really long time. And he and his partner, Joe, started, or at least were the officers that began uh, the mental health unit here uh, at the San Antonio Police Department. Now, this has been a program that's been so successful uh, in dealing with, um, you know, whether it's the homeless or people who are just suffering from mental problems. It's a, an issue in every city, big, small, or otherwise, in every state. Uh, and it's something that we, we just haven't done a very good job on. We have a tendency to treat the uh, mentally ill uh, as though they are criminals, and, and that's simply not the case. Well, uh, SAPD has become really proactive in leading the way, and this is a pilot program 
I said it's been so successful that other police departments throughout the, the, the entire nation are already trying to emulate it. And Joe and Ernie have been traveling around um, to, uh, to, to kind of help others bring this similar focus uh, to the mentally ill in other places. The movie started about two years ago um, when um, a producer decided she was going to do a documentary focusing on the mentally ill, and this was the vehicle that she used. I saw it last night, and it was absolutely magnificent. Um, Ernie and Joe were there along with the producer, um, and we got to ask questions when it was done, a short Q&A. But but this is an absolutely brilliant film. It it is, um, you're going to be seeing it uh, on other venues. There's possibility that other uh, stories will be made out of it kind of thing uh, for other TV productions. But um, this movie is is Oscar-worthy, Oscar-nomination-worthy uh, as, as a documentary category. And um, I tell you, when, when it comes out, you can go see it. You will be so blessed. You'll see cops who love Jesus, who deal with God's people gently and in love, and at the same time, they're very, very effective. So you can watch for screenings. You can watch to see where it's playing in town. I don't think it's it's not going to be uh, out for general distribution for a couple of weeks. But you can go to Ernie and Joe the Film dot com. Keep in touch there, and you will be blessed. I promise you when you go see it. Um, Ernie and Joe uh, were on this program. We talked about this way back in March of 2016. That's when this whole idea of the documentary began. And to have been involved in it and see it come to fruition is uh, is uh, really, really a blessing. So uh, keep Ernie and Joe, keep the film in your, pro- in your prayers. Um, we'll see how the Lord uses it. Uh, people with the SAPD who were there last night, especially the um, public relations director, uh, he's a born-again Christian. He is unashamed of his faith and and it was out there. He said, this movie is not just SAPD work. This is the Lord's work. And uh, it was just neat to see. So pray for our police officers, but pray for the movie and for Ernie and Joe as well. Okay, let me get to some questions that have been sent in. The first one I could take an hour with, but I won't. Uh, I'll interrupt anytime anybody calls. But this is a question from our email inbox from Kirby. Pastor On, I was reading Revelation chapter 6, and I find the description of seals fascinating. That's the seals of... Judgment, by the way. This is actually when the great tribulation actually begins on the earth. Okay, he continues. At first glance, it looks like some of the writer's tasks overlap. Could you elaborate a little on what each seal and writer represent and actually do, especially the first writer? Uh, I can do that. The first writer, of course, the first seal. uh, And we've got to understand that this is the beginning of the end of the world. Um, Imagine for a moment how eager heaven is for this moment. Uh, This is when Jesus is going to cleanse the world. Now, as Jesus opens his first seal in the book of Revelation, we're forced to admit that the world has grown more and more wicked with each passing generation. That's exactly why the world has to be judged. You know, we've heard, we all hear political candidates and uh, not only our country, but all over promising peace. Um, everything is going to be okay. Uh, we get Now it's in the time that we live in, we got to fix the environment and everything will be fine, climate change, and just deal with this. And but it's not. I'm old enough to remember reading the history of World War One, and it was supposedly the war to end all wars. But of course that didn't happen. World War Two was even worse. And the world that we live in isn't getting any better. We face chemical warfare. We face terrorist attacks. Uh, face threats that we don't even understand. Uh, the world is never going to be okay. So these seals represent the finality of all that's written. Now, one of the things you need to understand, Kirby, as you read through these seals, um, we, we read the opening of the seals concurrently. And that gives us the wrong impression sometimes. The seven seals are all opened at the same time. 
In addition, these seven seals contain all of the judgment. For example, the seventh seal, when you get to it, um, is going to be the seven trumpet judgments that follow, and the seventh trumpet is the seven bowl or vial judgments. So we have to read it with that understanding. Now, regarding the very first writer, um, there's been a lot of disagreement over the, the centuries regarding the writer of this horse and who he is. Now, uh, we know that in Revelation 19, Jesus appears on a white horse. Because of that, there are many who incorrectly assume that this rider is Jesus. That is not the case. There are similarities other than the horse. One is that the rider, here it says in verse 2 of Revelation 6, was given a crown. Jesus, you'll remember, has many crowns, and his crowns are completely different type. It's also true that both riders, Jesus and this rider, are bent on conquest. But the rider of this horse has only a bow. It says he was given a crown and he rode out as a conqueror bent on a conquest. Now, he held a bow, but this rider didn't have any arrows. In other words, his power to conquer has been taken from him. Now, he doesn't know it, but the only power this rider has is the power he's permitted by God to have. This rider, additionally, is summoned, ordered, it's unthinkable that any creative being would, ever, being would ever presume to summon Jesus. So this writer is someone like Christ, but definitely not Christ. So it's a counterfeit, and of course that's been one of Satan's big things all along. That he's been on conquest is proven by the history of the world that we live in. Now, um, this is going to be, uh, the writer is the man that we call the um, great, uh, the, the, the Antichrist, and not not the writer himself, but but he's going to set up the ministry of the Antichrist. So uh, this is just the beginning of the judgments. So that's what his responsibility is going to be. Um, when the second seal is opened, um, the second seal is um Ryder was given the power to take peace from the earth and make men slay each other. Tim was given a large sword, and he was riding on a fiery red horse. Now, the color red is often associated with terror and death. Um, later in the book of Revelation, we encounter a red dragon and a red beast. Uh, both are pictures of wanton bloodshed. Now, this seal, Kirby, is this plague of war. Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, these are just the beginning of birth pain. And in this particular seal, war is the instrument of judgment that God uses to, to judge men by other men. This sword is a very, very large one. Um, many Bible scholars look at this horse and riders representing thermonuclear weapons. Um, of course, John had no idea about modern warfare, um, but God did. So that's a possibility. We don't know for sure, but it's a possibility. The third seal, uh, it says in verse 5, when the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Um, then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a day's wages and three quarts of barley for a day's wages and do not damage the oil and wine. Now, this seal is the seal of famine, the judgment of famine. And that, of course, is the residual effect of the war that's described in the first seals. Um, it's always the innocent who starve while those in power continue to feast. Uh, that's what's meant in this by do not damage the oil and wine. The rich and the powerful will have plenty while the people suffer. That's sort of always been the case. Now, the scales in this one, and this is the last one I'll do, and we'll come back to it if we have a break uh, in, a, in, a, in a subsequent program. But the scales here are a picture that John would understand because this is a very Jewish way of saying that food is going to be scarce. That's why the scales are weighing food. Uh, it's an indication that food needs to be rationed. Uh, under normal circumstances, a, a person could buy as much as 12 quarts of wheat and even more barley for the equivalent of a day's wages in that time, but, but certainly not in the Great Tribulation. A quart of wheat would be enough for the daily needs of only one person. In the Great Tribulation, uh, a man will have to work all day just for enough to feed himself. And the Antichrist, of course, is going to eventually use all these shortages to gain the favor of the people. 
Uh, that's always been the plan. So uh, we'll come back here. So we got the three seals, Kirby. And again, I could spend the whole hour because this really is a whole Bible study. Uh, but we'll come back to it uh, when we have a little bit more time. Let's get to some questions here. Here is a question from... Got to find it. Here it is from Jeremy. Uh, Pastor Ron, I looked on your website for Sunday school times and didn't find any. Why don't you have Sunday school classes? Um, Jeremy, there's nothing wrong with Sunday school classes. Uh, in a lot of mainline denomination churches, the idea of Sunday school is that's where the Bible is going to be taught and people can sit around and discuss it and, and learn legitimate Bible study. Uh, but then they have something else they call the worship service. And and I've never really been able to figure out what that is. Now, I understand that people get very emotional, and I understand it's a place where the pastor gets up in front of people and tells stories and preaches a topical study on the Bible. Um, here at Calvary Chapel, Jeremy, we just never figured that's the best way to approach church. We believe very strongly that anybody, no matter their age, who comes to church ought to be taught the Bible. We also have multiple services. I have three services every Sunday And what that means is that we simply don't have time for these Sunday school breaks. So what we have done, Jeremy, and this is sort of a Calvary Chapel distinctive, is we've taken the teaching of the Word and made it central. We have worship um, in music before the Bible study, but then most of the time is given to the Bible study, and we figured that's the best way to worship God. We worship Him in song, and then we worship Him in the study of His Word. So I think the Sunday school classes that you are talking about are the classes where Bible would be studied. Um, Everything we do here at Calvary Chapel, every service is devoted to, committed to Bible study. So that's why we do it the way we do it. One of the advantages, Jeremy, I mentioned this on the program before, but uh, one of the advantages of getting saved late in life, I had no churchy baggage unpack. Uh, I, I didn't know how anybody did anything uh, or, or what the traditions were. Uh, I just assumed that the best way to worship God was to teach people the Bible, and that's what we've been doing now for uh, 24 years. Actually, our 24th birthday is going to be this month. So um, that's the way we do it. Uh, our service times, Jeremy, are 8.30, 10.15, and 11.59. Um, we do have some smaller studies. We have a foundation study on um, Sunday night at 5 o'clock. But we also have men's and women's studies during the course of the week with smaller groups and, and something that would be akin to more of a Sunday school um, atmosphere. So, Jeremy, I hope that makes sense to you. It's not that we think that Sunday school is bad. Um, we just want to turn all of church into a Sunday school, and throw in the worship. So, I hope that answers your question. Here is a question from Patricia. What is your opinion on Christians sinning, or do we get to a point where we do not sin any longer? Um, Patricia, two things. One, nobody, short of being with Jesus, is ever going to stop sinning. Sin is in us. Sin lives in us. Now, fortunately for believers, Patricia Christ also lives in us. So we've got this struggle going on inside. It's the struggle of flesh versus spirit. When we give in to the flesh, we sin. And because we are imperfect, because we continue to sin continually, that's always going to be the case. We are saints who sin To be a saint of God does not mean you have gotten to the point where you no longer need to sin. I know there is some really bad Bible teaching out there, Patricia, that says that we can get to the point where we can be sinlessly perfect. That is a lie from the pit of hell. The Apostle John writes, anybody who says he's without sin is a liar and the truth isn't in him in 1 John. So we understand that we sin and when we sin we have an advocate with the Father meaning our relationship with God, our fellowship with God, can be completely renewed and restored simply by repenting. Okay, Lord, I don't want to do that anymore. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. And it's done. 
and we can walk with Jesus. The arrogance, Patricia, of somebody who would teach that we can get to a place where we no longer sin is appalling to me because they're setting people up to be sitting ducks for the enemy who's going to say, you know, you shouldn't be sinning any longer. You're a Christian. Truth is, we're all going to sin. No, this isn't a license to sin. We can't sin willfully and say, well, okay, God, you knew I was going to do it, so you'll forgive me. We've got to hate our sin when we sin. And the reason this is so important to understand, Patricia, is because we will continue to sin, and every time we do, the enemy's going to be there to pound us with guilt. And Romans chapter 8, verse 1, of course, says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So every time you're feeling condemned because of sin, that's the enemy trying to destroy you, giving you the wrong impression of God and who He is. When you are convicted, that conviction of the Holy Spirit draws you to Christ. Condemnation or guilt drives you from Him. Conviction draws you to Him. And that's the way you can tell the difference. Viv wants to know, Pastor Ron, will Christians be in the Great Tribulation? Or will we be raptured first? I've had a lot of questions in the last three weeks about the rapture of the church. Um, We will not be here on earth. Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, Jesus' letter to the church of Philadelphia, the church that is the true church. Um, We will be removed from the place of tribulation that is going to come upon all those who live on the earth. And the idea there is heaven dwellers versus earth dwellers. If you, your focus is earth, then you're going to be left in the Great Tribulation. If your focus is heaven, you're not. That's simple. Um, we have not, First Thessalonians says, Paul writing, we've not been appointed unto wrath, but instead we've been appointed salvation. And by the way, in First Thessalonians, there's this great contrast repeatedly between us and them. And the us is those who are going to be with Jesus. The them are those who are going to be left behind. But... Uh, Viv, the, the rapture is God's wrath. I mean, sorry, the, 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 the great tribulation is God's wrath poured out on a Christ-rejecting world. God is righteously angry at a world that's rejected his son, the only answer for sin. So God is going to pour out his judgment, his wrath. But you see, God can't pour out his wrath on Christians because we're perfect. Positionally, we've already been cleansed of all of our sin. And that's why we cannot be here. It would be inconsistent with the character and the nature of God. And every doctrine that we come to believe in has to be measured against what's known about the character and nature of God. So we will not be here um, just prior to the Great Tribulation starting. We're going to be taken away here in in an instant, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye. We're going to be called into the air to meet Jesus. He's not coming here for us. He's bringing us up to meet him in the air. And when he does that, that's the key. We're gone, so now we can judge the world. And he's going to pour out his wrath on this world. So Viv, don't worry about having to be here. Jesus told us that we should pray that we would be counted accounted worthy to escape those things. And the way we're kind of worthy is Jesus to give us his worthiness, to give us his perfection. So don't worry about being in the Great Tribulation. You won't be here if you are a born-again Christian. I had a question um, Monday, I think it was, Viv, about disobedient Christians. Well, if you're really a Christian, your sins, past, present, future, wiped away. So it doesn't mean you have to be perfect to be taken to the rapture. What it should mean to all of us is that we really want to be perfect as close as we can while we wait for the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church is our reward. We're going to be taken into heaven and we're going to marry Jesus. The wedding supper of the Lamb is going to take place. It's going to last for seven years according to the time on earth. And that seven years, of course, is the time of the Great Tribulation. So, Viv, look for Jesus don't look for the end of Christ. Don't look for the great tribulation. Just use the time. Paul says, redeem the time or make the most of your time 
Why? Because the days are short. And as for me, I believe that this rapture could happen at nearly any minute. So I want to be ready because nobody knows the time it's going to come. One more final thought here, Viv, and I'm, I'm doing this. I'm kind of stretching the answer out a little bit because I'm running out of time and I don't want to get in the middle of another question before the break. Um, the Great Tribulation, when it begins, it'll be a time like no other has ever been before. A time so dreadful Jesus said that even the elect, the days hadn't been shortened, would be completely destroyed. Even his people, Israel. The Great Tribulation is a time that God sets things right and then he returns to restore his throne in Jerusalem, the throne of David, and fulfill all of the promises made to the nation of Israel throughout time. So the rapture of the church could happen at any moment. We need to be ready. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left. The phones have been quiet. We'd love your calls. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. You're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. We'll be back in two minutes. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the program. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Since the phones are quiet, let me go back and I'll try to maybe get two more of the seals uh, to answer Kirby's question. Now, if you're wondering why I'm committed to this, I just love the book of Revelation. I've taught this three or four times here at Calvary Chapel, and I've actually taught it in other places as well. Uh, it's it's um, a magnificent book to teach. So, um, Revelation 6 talks about the fourth seal. When the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, I looked in there before me, was a pale horse. Now, the pale horse, Kirby, uh, this word in Greek means green, and it's sort of like a pale green, like chlorine. Um, uh, This is the way uh, Jesus um, describes death uh, apart from him. It says its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. Now, um, the fourth seal uh, is a result of the other three seals having already been opened. And here's why it's symbolizing death with an estimated world population of about 6 billion. That's conservative. And that's that's in the future. If, it, if Jesus tarries a little longer, it could be far more than that. But the idea here is that by the time the fourth seal is open, death will be at unprecedented levels in the world, like never before seen. Uh, in the book of Revelation, previously we read that Jesus holds the key of death in Hades. Well, this is the time when death claims the body and Hades claims the soul. And Jesus frees us from both. So this is a reference to the death. The fifth seal, verse 9 in Revelation chapter 6, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. Now, with the opening of the fifth seal, the nature of judgment changes altogether. We're now looking into heaven. We're away, looking away from earth. And that means we have to have an eternal perspective. So what John is looking at here is the scene of tribulation martyrs. They that are under the altar is a Jewish way of saying that their lives have been poured out as an offering to God. These are the people who maintained or refused to submit to the Antichrist. These are the people who became convinced during the Great Tribulation that Jesus really is the Christ, the Son of God and God the Son. Uh, I, I say this often in talking about the end times. But the Great Tribulation is going to be the scene of the greatest revival in the history of the world. 
And they're going to be uh, under the altar, symbolizing their death. They will have been martyred for the cause of Christ. And they're going to be crying out, How long, O Lord, until our death is avenged? Um, It's really important. That's the fifth seal. And after they cry out, How long, O Lord? Um, These are prayers that are always in the will of God. Jesus tells them, be patient. Uh, These men were given a white robe. They were told to wait a little bit longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had was completed. So that's the fifth seal. And maybe if we have time and no calls come in a little bit later, we'll get to the last two seals. Let's go to our first phone call from Seguin and talk with Reuben on line one. Reuben, good to hear from you. You are on the air. God bless you, Pastor Ron. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Reuben. Thank you. That's great to hear. I, I really hope and I pray that I don't become that annoying person that keeps calling every week. <laughs> because it seems like I do. I've been doing that for the past month or so. But um, as I asked you last time about Paul, you know, about when he wrote the things that I want, I want to do, I don't do, and the things I do, I, I, I do. Do you remember when I asked you about that? Could you clarify? Okay, could you clarify something for me? Two things. Two things. Okay, nowhere in the Bible does it say that uh, Jesus, when he died in, in the cross, that he wiped our sins away uh, past, future, past, present, and future. It doesn't say that. All it says is that he wiped all of our sins away. And, and that's inclu- implying or... Is that the correct word, or or is that including past, present, and future? That's one of the questions that I want to know. And then secondly, I have been trying to wrap my mind around this, and I don't know if the enemy is just intentionally trying to make me confused. Um, the scripture in Second Corinthians 12 and 9, I believe, where Jesus tells, or, or where God tells Paul, that my grace is sufficient for... Now, this isn't going to be verbatim, but it says that my grace is sufficient for you. And I think it says for... in For my strength is made strong in your weakness or something like that. But you, know, you know what scripture I'm talking about, right? I do. Okay, okay. Now, the question is, can you help me understand my weakness, the thing the Lord knows what I deal with. The Lord knows what my weakness is. And he knows that I try every single day, uh, that I I deal with it every single day. And I'm I'm like, it, it bothers me to the point where I have to repent because I feel like God is... Is, is not going to hear my prayers because I deal with this issue every single day. So uh, 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 when, I don't want to say when I give into it, because I, I, I rarely, rarely do. And, I, and that's not, I mean, I'm not trying to like make it sound good because sin is sin. Sin is sin. I'm not, I know that. Romans chapter 1, chapter 6, verse 1 is, is seared in my brain. Where, you know, <laughs> Paul says there, that is seared in my brain. So um, what I'm trying to say is, like, he knows my weakness. So why do I still do that what I, which I don't want to do? If in my weakness, according to what Second Corinthians says, he is made strong. Not that I am questioning him, not that I doubt him, because he knows that I don't doubt him. He knows that I have faith in him. And, and I pray and I say, Lord, please, you know my heart, and you know the intentions in which my questions are meant. You know that they're not meant to be accusatory or, or uh, you know, because that's how I talk to God. I talk to him like, you know, Lord, I'm not trying, you know, you know what I mean? And like, because I feel, I feel when I ask him, well, show, Lord, speak to me, show me. Explain to me, Lord, how is it that in my weakness you say that you are made strong, but yet I still do that which I don't want to do when, <laughs> according to your word, you say that you will you will be strong. So can you help me understand that? I can. And, and I'm going to answer that question first because the, the, the first question is easy and won't take much time. But, but this one's really important, especially for somebody... Who struggles now? The first thing that you need to understand is that you can't divorce Paul's statement from the context of the passage that it appears in. 
So here's what Paul is saying. He said that that uh, one of his weaknesses, Paul said, um, is was was that he had the tendency to think too highly of himself. And he said in verse seven of Second Corinthians twelve, to keep me from being conceited, because of the surpassingly great revelations that was given to me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Now, the whole context there, Anthony, uh, isn't your sin. Paul is talking in this. This is a first-person testimony. And here's what he's saying. Now, I'm going to paraphrase this as as clearly as I possibly can. He's saying, look, Lord, uh, I have a problem with pride. I've seen things that no other man has ever seen, and there's times, especially when somebody is bugging me, they're questioning my qualifications as an apostle, or they're doubting my teaching of the Word. Uh, I want to look at them, and I want to say, uh, have you been to heaven? Have you seen the things I've seen? And, and because he had this battle with pride, God gave him this thorn in the flesh. Now, all we know, Anthony, about the thorn in the flesh is that it is a physical affliction, and it caused him great, great, great pain. And in one of those instances, he pleaded with God to take it away. In verse 9, the verse that you brought up is basically Jesus saying, nope, I'm not going to take it away. My grace is sufficient for you. In other words, what he's saying is, you need that thorn. Every time you start to think a little bit too highly of yourself, I'm going to jab you. I'm going to let the, the enemy jab you with this. And, and this means that Satan had the power given to him by God, the permission given to him by God to afflict Paul. Now, to us, that doesn't seem fair, but Paul needed, every time he would feel that pain or every time this illness, whatever it was, every time he'd come back, Paul would immediately check his heart. And what he's saying when he says, my grace is sufficient for you, he's saying, don't worry, in your weakness, I'll be strong. That doesn't mean he took it away. Now, Anthony, in your particular case, you say, well, why do I keep doing the thing that I don't want to do? And, and that you give in to it only occasionally is not okay, but it's, it's, it, it indicates that you're fighting it. So why do you resist sometimes, and why do you... Uh, give in sometimes, the answer comes from Romans chapter 7, verse 25, because you and me, Anthony, I want to be sure that, you know, I'm not picking on you. We're wretched people. We have this ugly flesh. Paul says in, in, in Romans 6, so I find this law at work, that when I sin, it's not me who sins, but sin living in me. So that sin and temptation is a part of the fabric of who we are in the flesh. And so we fight and we fight and we fight. And every time you're tempted, and here's, I think, Paul's point in Romans 7, every time you're tempted, you've got to say, Lord, I don't want to do that. I don't want to give in. So help me, Jesus, to resist. Now, what we do when we give in, we've made a choice to stop resisting. What does James say? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. We don't resist often enough. It doesn't mean that we're not saved. It doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't love us or he's not proud of us. It just means that we're flesh. And while it's not an excuse to sin, when we sin, we have an advocate with the Lord, with the Father, that's Jesus Christ himself, the mediator between man and God. And that's the whole purpose of repentance. So, Anthony, you're at a, at a, at a good place in this struggle, whatever it is you're struggling with, you've come to the place where you hate it. Now, what God is asking you to do is realize the power that has been given to you to resist this sin and apply it before you give in. And you know you can do it because from your own mouth, you just said that, that most of the time you do resist. Most of the time you do have victory over it. But sometimes you fall back. It's in those times that you fall back that you've let something get between you and Jesus in your relationship. Flesh, ugly thoughts, lust, who, who knows, whatever it is, you know the answer and we don't. 
So all you have to do is let his power in you resist. 1 Corinthians 10.13, I've given that verse to you before. 1 Corinthians 10.13 is one that ought to be tattooed on your brain. Thank you, Anthony. Oh, the, the first question is, you said it doesn't explicitly say that past, present, and future sins are all forgiven, but it does. That's what all sins is. You couldn't say we're forgiven from all sin or we're purified from all sin if our present or future sins weren't included. Then he would have said we're purified from some sin or we're forgiven for most sins. It doesn't. We're, we're, we're forgiven from all sin. And remember, from heaven's perspective eternally, there's no time frame. There's only the moment. So in the moment, in the, in the instant that we're forgiven, we've been cleansed by the Lord. We're perfect. Now, sanctification is the process of working out that perfection here on earth. But the truth is, Anthony, as I said to our first question today, is uh, as long as we're in this world and we're struggling with this flesh and blood body, we're sometimes going to sin. When we do, it's because sin is in us. That's not an excuse. Paul wasn't giving us an excuse. He wasn't denying responsibility. What he was saying is, look, when I sin, it's my fault because sin lives in me. But the real me, Christ in me, the hope of glory, doesn't want to sin. So, Anthony, thank you. I hope that answers your question. Let's go to Carrie calling from Bernie uh, on line two. Carrie, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Carrie, you're with us? Yes, I'm, I'm here. Can you hear me? Okay. I can hear you now, Carrie. Okay, sorry about that. Um, okay. I've got four children, and, you know, they're, I'm trying to teach them about Jesus and what it means to be born again, and I think that they do have it. I just, uh, but, you know, I think that um, they're always kind of questioning themselves from time to time, and, and I, I my question is, on behalf of my children, how um, are they to know that beyond a shadow of a doubt they are saved by our, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? And um, how old? And how, how old are? And, okay, how old are the kids? Are, um, they. I have four kids. So they range from the ages of four to um, twelve. Okay. Um, thank you. I can I can answer that. Uh, a cu- couple of things. One, we have to remember that that the, the children in an age uh, discrepancy like that. Uh, are going to have different um, abilities to understand, um, different levels of maturity in their relationship with God. Certainly the 12-year-old is is old enough to know whether he or she uh, really is saved, and God wants them to know that. Uh, the 4-year-old on the other end of that spectrum may not. So here's what you do with the young ones. Uh, you just, first of all, tell them about Jesus. You 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 read Bible stories to them. You 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 answer the questions that they have, and some of the questions that kids come up with are absolutely brilliant. And sometimes they can be really really difficult. Um, but but keep putting Jesus before them. This is who He is. This is why He loves you. This is what He's done for you because He loves you. And as long as you keep putting Jesus in them then the Holy Spirit, as soon as they are able, will sort of take over. Now, I can tell you, your four-year-old, um, probably not yet at the age of accountability, although I've had a four-year-old or two that, that were, um, um, you know, he or she might not get it. But you just keep presenting Jesus, and the Holy Spirit will do the work when this the young child is ready. Now, the older kids, uh, it's, it's equally important that you sit down with them in the Word, and you have to instill confidence in them in what the Bible says. How do I know I'm saved? I don't feel like I'm saved. Those kinds of questions. Here's where you have the opportunity as a dad to teach faith. Say, well, you see, our faith isn't based on what we feel. Our faith is based on what the Bible says. And here's what the Bible says. The Bible says that if you believe, Do you believe in Jesus? They'll say, yes, I believe in Jesus. Do you love Jesus? Yes, I love Jesus. If you believe, and if you ask Jesus in your heart, then you are saved. And that's what you have to believe by faith. 
And even when the times when the, the enemy brings doubts or even in the times when you mess up, you do something wrong, remember that the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. And because he died, because he didn't stay dead, you can know for sure that you belong to him. And Carrie, the age differences in the, in the uh, children that you have, um, have family Bible studies together, but individually talk to them, keep reinforcing this. Now here's the last thing I'm going to say, and this is the most important thing. Carrie, uh, in your home, mom and dad, and you didn't say mom was in the picture, but I assume she is, mom and dad have to model Jesus. You know, if you tell them about Jesus, but if you get angry and you raise your voice and you say bad things to them or they hear you and mom fighting, saying bad things, well, well they're not going to have a very loving picture of Jesus. So it's really important that you and your wife, their mother and father, rightly represent Jesus to them day in and day out. You see, as they grow up, the world is going to try to steal the faith that you're planting. And that faith has got to be so deeply embedded in them. They've got to know when they get to be 10 or 11 or something and they, they know that they've done something wrong. They've got to know beyond any doubt that they can go to a loving, patient God because they know that Mommy and Daddy's Jesus is real. They know that Mommy and Daddy's Jesus is love because they're loved by Mommy and Daddy. You know, when we send mixed messages, when we say Jesus, or when we teach Jesus, or we drag kids to church, but at home in private, when we misrepresent him, that's a conflict that the enemy is going to try to take advantage of. So, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible, let the Word of God, not you, Carrie, but let the Word of God do the work. And if you'll do that, uh, your kids will be in really solid ground. You let them know how you know you're saved. I promise you, they'll be blessed. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Let's go to Jimmy on line one. Jimmy, good to hear from you. You're on the air. Okay. Um, hey, um, how you doing? Revelation nineteen. Who is the great horde of destroyed the nation? Who is that? What is God talking about? Is He talking about the uh, stuff that's what's, going on right now? What Revelation nineteen? What verse? Uh, I think, oh, I have to look it up again. It's Revelation 19, chapter 19. Okay. And I was reading it. I just reading it a little while ago. So, but I was reading on the phone. I know you told me not to read on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> but I, just, I don't have the Bible uh, with me right now. So. Uh, are you, the, the very first verse says, after this I heard what sounded like a great, like the roar of a great multitude. Is that what you're talking about? No, but at the end of the chapter, the end of the verse, it says uh, there was a whore that destroyed our nation or something like that. On the end of it. Um, yeah. I'm looking, but I don't see that. The rest of them were gorged. The beast was captured. Well, the, 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 the obviously the beast, the Antichrist, uh, the, is, mm-hmm. is the... Um, perpetrator of, of all the bad things. But Revelation chapter 19, Jimmy, is all and only about Jesus coming back. Yeah. So I'm, I'm not right. sure which verse you're talking about, but, but when Jesus comes back and destroys his enemies, he does so with a word. Out of his mouth, verse 15 says, comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Uh, he will be, um, he will rule them with an iron scepter uh, he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty on his robe and his thigh. He has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and, and all of that. And then he summons the, the birds of the air to come and kind of clean up the world, to kind of clean up the earth from the people who are destroyed. So um, when, you, when you say great horde, you're, you're not looking at the translation, um, but the, the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies are gathered together to try to make war against Jesus. And, of course, that doesn't work. So he destroys them, and, and everything's fine. But Revelation chapter 19 is all and only about Jesus returning. So uh, if you've got a different translation, if you maybe you can call back tomorrow, give me the, a verse, and I'll be able to tell you exactly what what uh, what the answer is, okay? Oh, okay. 
Sorry, but that that's that's very encouraging to me. Jesus coming yeah. back. Uh, you know, that day could be. It's not, but it could be seven years from now. If we were raptured Man. here right now, Jimmy, seven years from now, we would come back with Jesus as He sets feet on the Mount of Olives, and and all of His enemies will be vanquished, and then He establishes the kingdom, and you and I are going to rule and reign with Him in that kingdom. Isn't that cool? Yes, I long for that day. Ooh. I long for the day when he calls us to be his, when we marry him. Uh, that's the rapture of the church. And then when the time is right, we return with him. And we said everything is wrong. And we set him right. Thank you very much. 340-9585. Oh, we don't have time for any more calls. Um, Jimmy, maybe you were looking at chapter 17. It said the woman... Uh, was dressed in purple and scarlet uh, and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think that's it either. So we're, that, we're, we're inside one minute. Uh, let me see if I have a one-minute question, and we will... Mark says, How could Jesus be God and not know when he was coming back? Well, remember, Philippians chapter 2, Mark, says that Jesus veiled his deity... He didn't stop being God. He just veiled his deity and he walked earth like a human. So he didn't know when he was here in human flesh when he was going to come back. Of course, he does know that now. God knows everything. But he veiled his deity and he just served his father one day at a time. Maybe I'll come back to that on the program on Friday. Remember, Paul alive in studio tomorrow, ladies, on the date day edition of the program. I also want to remind you of the film Ernie and Joe, the film.com. You'll be blessed. May the Lord bless you and keep you. We'll see you tomorrow at 4 o'clock. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.